0: Hi there, my name is Michael Harris. I'm host of Falling Up Radio. I'm not going to get into all, all the normal stuff that we talk about because I want to give as much time to our guest today as possible. We talk a lot about falling up and about healing, overcoming stuff with yoga, back pain, all sorts of different things. But today, I, I invited a friend of mine on and I really wanted to just really talk about. You know, having a good life and and having fun and, you know, all those other things aren't really any good unless we're having fun. So our guest, you may or may not recognize him already. Uh, Thomas Baylor is a creative. And I'm going to read off a, a short list of some of the things that you may recognize him for. He worked with Michael Jackson. He wrote the song, She's Out of My Life over 20 million YouTube videos, plus millions more that other artists have played as well. Tommy's worked with Frank Sinatra, Billy Joel, Karen Carpenter, Cher, Kenny Rogers, Elvis, Barbara Streisand, Smokey Robinson, David Cassidy, Harry Belafonte, Patti LaBelle, Willie Nelson, Cyndi Lauper, and the list goes on, and one person we cannot forget one of Tommy's um, most favorite brothers and friends, not literally brother, but brother, is Quincy Jones. Um, And I also wanted to mention, I I went on to allmusic.com and looked at Tommy's credits. They have 367 credits listed. This guy's really a legend, producer, composer, director, vocal arrangements, trumpet, and so on. Like I said, he wrote She's Out of My Life, as well as a number, a number of other songs, uh, was involved with We Are the World, and hopefully we can take a little time to talk about that. So Tommy, welcome. Glad you could be yeah. here today. Yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah, I know you're a busy man, so I really appreciate um, you taking the, the time today to um, have a discussion with the listeners and tell them what it's like to have a kick-ass life.
1: Happy to do that.
0: Yeah. First, I'd I'd like to read a little bit out of your second book, What You Want, Wants You. This is a fascinating book because I really like the way that you talk about creative, creativeness, connecting with the universe, and really doing what we love to do. And you're, you're such an example of that. So I'm going to read, like I said, seven or eight sentences, something like that. So why did I receive this idea? It came to me because I, it picked me. Why? Because I had the passion to make this idea reality. That's why. I believe it had been waiting for me. Declaring what I wanted opened the gate. Permission was granted for this idea to move into my consciousness, and at first I did not understand it. Get permission from someone in power. Okay, this may be my favorite part. I'm excited to introduce you to one of the most fascinating phrases that I ever heard from my dad, one that immediately caused a bright light to shine in my mind. When this idea first comes to you, you may not understand it, because if you did, it wouldn't be new. (laughs) You remember writing that, Tommy?
1: I remember hearing it. Yeah. From my dad. Yeah. Well, tell him. Tell them the
0: story that came from, because it's a fascinating story as a child about what happened.
1: Well, I don't remember this part of the book. I mean, I remember the story, but but, uh, there were so many moments I had like this with my dad, because my dad was a great father, but he was also a mentor, and that isn't necessarily a father's job, but my dad felt it was his, and his mother mentored him. So uh, it's just this philosophy that's just sort of been passed down um, from generations, and that's why the book is called What You Want, Wants You. Yeah. That <clears throat> energy is a pack.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I love this part of the book is when you were a child, and it was talking about getting your Cushman,
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I love that story. I'll be ha- a Cushman was a motor scooter that was very cool back in the forties. They started building them in the thirties, and they built them through the fifties. And uh, I had a paper route. I had two paper routes, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, and I enjoyed them. And I rode my bike. And uh, one of my buddies who lived on the next block had two paper routes too, and they were much bigger than mine. And he got a Cushman. And all of a sudden he was home like an hour and a half before, cause I would miss dinner most of the nights, you know, my mom would leave dinner <laughs> on the stove and it wasn't like a hardship. It was just, you know, it was, it was just what it was. And, and, uh, but he was 15 and a half and he had a learner's permit. I was 13. And uh, so I talked to my dad about getting a Cushman and he explained to me that, um, you know, you're not old enough to get a learner's permit, which you need to ride this. And the problem is that if you were to get pulled over by the police and ticketed, it would make you getting your learner's permit up to six months to a year later. Mm-hmm. That was the way he warned me about it. He did not say no. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> I think I'll ride my bike. Yeah. But I wouldn't give up. So, I thought, this is where it came to me, get permission, because I said, what do I want? I want a Cushman. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. Well, what came to me, this is this formula that our family has that's so beautiful. Um, You declare what you want, and then you're a good host to the ideas that come in. Because when you declare what you want, our way of looking at it is you open the doors to the universe. And and if you are worthy of this, and I'm not talking about being a good person, if it's going to good be good for the universe for you to get this the the thing that you want, it'll do it for you. It'll make it it'll, it'll conspire to help you. Now it's all up to us. We can't turn, turn, wait for it. And say, okay, I said I want it. Where's my Kushman? Yeah. But uh, so I wanted a Cushman. and uh, what came to me was. Because when my dad talked about getting a ticket and all that stuff, it just so happened that my best friend, Tucky's uh, father was the city manager. He's kind of, uh, you know, uh, he's not really a politician, but he's very connected with the city. So I went down and knocked on his door. He was so sweet. He came to the door. He says, hey, Tommy, I'll get Tucky for you. And I said, actually, Mr. Coop, I'd like to speak with you. And I told him my story of why I wanted um how, why I wanted a Cushman, because I could serve my, my customers better. Because it would be easy for me to go porch, porch of paper, uh, you know, and all of these things, and I could build my routes and everything. And anyway, he said, well, you know, and I said, I'm aware of the law and everything, but I've just mentioned it to you. I, uh, and he said, okay, here's, I can't remember the sergeant's name, but anyway, he says, Here's Sergeant so-and-so's number. He's a desk sergeant at the police department. Call him and tell him I told you to call. I called him and told him I wanted, this is what I wanted to do. And he said, well, you know, Tommy, if, if you are delivering papers on your Cushman and you're obeying the law, I can't think of any of our officers that would pull you over. Mm. And I said, oh my gosh, would you tell this to my dad? <laughs> and he said, I'd be happy to. So I'm like, Dad, I'm going to follow the police department. Would you please talk to the sergeant? Talk to the sergeant. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Well, that's a good idea. He gets off the phone and he says, I have no idea how you did that.
0: But you can get a good one. Wow. And I I imagine you were pretty jazzed at the time.
1: Well, I was thrilled. Yeah. I was thrilled. And the thing is, then I got to know the the officers in our area and I didn't have to write, I didn't have to be delivering papers. Mm-hmm. They knew I was a good citizen. They're like, he's fine, he's fine. Now that was a different time, you know, this was a different time than it is now. And so, yeah, that's just a great example of this philosophy that I learned as a child that as far as we know started with my grandmother of there are four points to it. You declare what you want, You're a good host to the ideas that come in and your next statement is I'm taking action. And when dad first told me about this, I said, so I say, I'm going to take action. He said, son, listen to my words. I'm gonna is the future I'm taking is the present." I love it. Yeah. And then the fourth, I said, okay. And you said, there's four steps. He said, yeah, the fourth step is trust like a tea kettle. (laughs) And I said, well, uh, what does that mean? You know? And he said, well, if you put a tea kettle on the stove, what happens? He said, I said, well, the water boils. He said, not yet. You need a fire. And your fire is declaring what you want, being a good host, and declaring that you're taking action. That's your fire. Now, once you got the fire under the tea kettle, are you going to stand there and wait for it to boil? Probably not, but your, your awareness is heightened because you're going to wait for that. For that sound. And he's, and I said, does this work, dad? And he said, it has never not worked for me as long as what I want serves others. Yeah.
0: Wow. Powerful. Now you you had already learned that even younger than that too. From-
1: well, I learned it actually at five. I mean, but I didn't understand. That's really when he went into the whole formula of it. Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. Was five years old. I wanted. I had a flat on my back on my bike. Yeah. And wow. it's early on Sunday Saturday morning. I probably woke my dad up, and he's actually he was such a cool guy because he liked to sleep in, but if he could see that either one of his boys was troubled, sleep was secondary. So anyway, I woke him up and I said, dad, dad He said, what is it? And I said, uh, my bike has a flat. And he mm-hmm. says, What do you want? And I thought I annoyed him. Mm-hmm. And by this time, he's out of bed. And, and I said, Oh, I'm sorry. And he gets down on his haunches. So he's looking at me straight in the eye. And he says, son, listen to my words. What do you want? I said I want my bike not to have a flat. And he said, "Great. What are you going to do about it?" I said, "I don't know." And he <laughs> said, "If you did know, which was dad's code for use your talent. We all have a talent of perception." Yeah. We have eyes, we have ears. Yeah. Use those. So I looked at my by this time we're down um, we're out in the yard. I looked at the at the tire has fallen off the rim and i said i guess that tire needs to come off the rim and he said great how are you going to do that i'm like oh man <laughs> so <laughs> now again i look at the wheel which is held on to the fork by two nuts and i said i guess those nuts need to come off and he says great i'll get you a wrench so dad was present he didn't blow me off he was totally there my dad in 45 years i had him on this planet never answered a question but he guided me to discovery you see what happened he said how are you going to do that so now i discover myself that i need to take the tire off then i discovered that i need to take the nuts off he didn't tell me well you need to take those off and i've and i would be thinking wait a minute what order does this go in you know i mean it's a whole thing because it's receptive listening to advice
2: yeah
1: discovering is this is mine yeah. This is mine, man. So he brings me a, he brings a wrench and he goes, you're five, I'll loosen it. So he loosens the nuts and then he stands back, crosses his arms and looks at me with a smile. And I start taking this thing apart. And, and when I took the nuts off, I said, oh, dad, there are all these things, these washers. I don't, how am I going to keep track of this? And he said, well, son, you're two. He said, may I make a suggestion? That was always, I was raised on questions and suggestions. May I make a suggestion? I said, yes. He said, you're two, you're two feet from a wall. If I were doing this, I'd take the nuts off and put them next to the wall. Then I'd take the lock washers off and put them next to the nuts, but toward me. Then the flat washers next to the lock washers toward me. And all the parts that I take off, I would just keep putting them toward me. And then after we fixed the tire, Start with the parts closest to you. Work your way back to the wall. Now, a five-year-old, I understand this. I don't have to remember anything. What did he say? How do you do that? No, it was clear. When I took him off, it was clear how to do it the other way. It was just amazing, man. And what I loved is that he—he. this is the way I was raised by this man. And he would never answer a question. And... um, and yet, he guided me to discovery, and that's how I fell in love with Aesop, because we owned a record store at the time, and Warner Brothers had come. I was three years old. So it was 1946. Well, Warner Brothers came out because there were 78 records. They play them on both sides, and they're you know they're about uh, about eight inches. They had an eight inch and I think a 12 inch. Anyway, they had four four records in there, and it was they would tell a classic story. With, with the Looney Tunes characters, which were Bugs Bunny, Almer Fudd, Daffy Duck, uh, Porky Pig. And they would tell these classic stories. And uh, since we sold them, when they came in, my dad asked the guy who ran the store to drop one off to me. And, uh, and when I saw this, I loved the pictures on it and everything. I started playing it. I fell in love with this story. When dad came home, I remember running to him and holding his leg, saying, dad, thank you. I love this story. It's so wonderful. And he said, "Uh, what? So glad you like it, son. You know, that's not a new story. And I said, it's not because I just got it right. Mm -hmm. He said, no, that story is 2,500 years old. Well, the story was Bugs Bunny and the Tortoise, which is, Looney Tunes version of the hare and the tortoise. Where did the hare and the tortoise come from? It came from Aesop, who was a Greek slave born in 620 BC, and ended up as an ambassador to the most powerful king in the world. He, his rise was amazing. And, and what was his secret? Well, I was to find out that secret, and that was one of the secrets that that has guided my life, let alone my career. Um, he guided us. so, so anyway, he told me the story and I said, dad, I love the story. Oh, and he said, oh, by the way, yeah, it's not a new story. And I said, is 2,500 years old? Bugs Bunny is at 2,500 years old. <laughs> you know, <He> said, <laughs> I know that. Yes, you're right. But the story is, and he said, as a matter of fact, in the original story, the tortoise wins. Mm. I'm like, no way. Yeah. It how can that be? Win. Yeah. Right. He said, you know what, I'm going to bring home a, a book of Aesop's fables because this is typical of him. So he brings home these stories, and for two years, he's reading me these stories, and I love every one of them, and he must have told me each one. There's 347 of them, but anyway, he told me.
0: There's no way, there's 347 stories?
1: Yeah, fables, yeah. Wow. Yeah, now the thing is that Aesop did not write them all, um, because I've studied him so much, I can tell the ones that he wrote, but what he did is he started a trend. This is what parables, this is before Christ, by the way, you know, Mm -hmm. parables were stories in which, and so are fables and parables are different in certain ways, but they share this commonality. They guide us toward discovering the meaning. The listener discovers the meaning of the story. So when I'm five years old, Dad has told me this several times. I said, Dad, what does that mean? And he said, well, son, if I were to say to you, you shouldn't lie because people won't believe you when you tell the truth. I can only imagine what would be going on in your mind. You would be thinking, I bet you might be thinking, oh, my God, did I ever lie to dad? Why does dad think I'm a liar? And you're going to go completely off course because you've been attacked. When I say you shouldn't, that's an attack. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't lie. That was an attack on you. He said, but if I tell you a story about a little shepherd boy whose job it was to watch the sheep at night. He was all alone with the sheep and he's looking down on the village and everybody's partying and having a great time and he's up there and it's not that warm and he's all alone and he's lonely. And he thinks, oh my God, I hate this. What do I do about it? What can I do about it? Well, oh, you know what? You know what it would get him out here? If I cried wolf. So he cries wolf and sure enough, the whole village comes up to check out their sheep. And now this kid feels, uh, he, he feels validated. He feels loved, cared for. And while they're there, they're making sure everything, we're, show, we're so glad you're okay. By the way, where's the wolf? He said, well, well, um, he, uh, well when he saw you coming, he ran off. And they mm-hmm. went, of course he did. So they believe him.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that
1: was fine, but he kept doing it and kept doing it. You know how kids are, do it again, do it again. Pretty soon they were like, oh, this is a ruse. So when the wolf did come, the people did not. And he said to me, son, What do you get from this story? And I said, if you lie, people won't believe you when you tell the truth. He said, yes, but who discovered that? I thought, I did, you did. And that's when dad said, I have yet to forget anything I have discovered. I have forgotten at least half of what I've learned. Wow, And he and I talked about this subject throughout his life because the more, the older we got, the more sophisticated thinkers, you know, we would talk about it. So we think about it. So it's a different energy. You know, it's feminine. I mean, uh, this isn't about sex, but the feminine receives. That's how she gives birth. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Is, is the, is the doer. So, If you receive advice, you're receiving. When you're the doer and you discover something, that's yours. That is.
0: You never forget it. Absolutely.
1: And by the way, this has nothing to do with men and women. I'm just talking about the feminine energy versus, you know, and, and so that was the point. And, uh, and I fell in love with Aesop when I was three years old. And as time went on, I just had a deeper and deeper understanding. And then he moved in with me. And uh, when I got to the point of being a composer, I, I love musicals, I wanted to write a musical. And, and uh, I was in a very good position to do that. And and the guy, and the fellow who wanted me to, you know, he suggested I write a musical. He said, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, I think Aesop is a great subject. He said, oh my God, I think this is fabulous. To show his rights, because he was born, he was born as a slave without access. Now, slaves in, in ancient times were not beat up and didn't walk around and change. This is all, you know, Unfortunately, you know somebody's wild idea. They were owned, and they were respected, but they didn't get paid, and they couldn't leave. You know, so you are, you are a servant, but and you're not being paid, but you're being fed. You have a place to live, and it depended on what kind of slave you were. If you're if you're a uh, if you're a field slave, you're treated differently. You know, if you're a house slave. You're one of the family, you know? And this is the way that Aesop grew up because his mother, now, by the way, the whole story I'm telling you doesn't exist. This is the story that came to me. Talk about being a good host. Anytime Uh Aesop knocked on my door, I would bring it on and I wrote it down. And so this is is probably the greatest case of me declaring what I want and listening, being a good host, and... Taking action on that and trusting, Mm -hmm. and um, and I trust. I trust in my life, and what I found is that uh, I have to tell the truth about myself to myself. If I bullshit myself, I'm already started off on the right path. Yeah, on on the wrong path. Right, and it is yet to work out. But when I admit this is what it is and then say what I want, somehow things work out.
0: Yeah. Isn't that amazing how
1: that happens? Well, it's energy. I think it's just a flow of energy. It's not personal. You know, I, I'm, uh, we all have our own beliefs and I, uh, I, I honor anybody's belief. You know, if you were to ask me to agree with you, I'd say, well, I may not be, well, I may not be in agreement with you in specifics. I am in concepts, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and, uh, it's, it's been a huge winner for me. And also this, sometimes things came to me before I declared. For instance, when I first, you know, I grew up in music and, um, but I fell in love with an album called Genius Plus Equals Jazz. I think mean, it came out in 1959, and it was Ray Charles, and Quincy Jones was the arranger. Mm-hmm. And I was in love with Ray Charles because of What I Say,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and I even went to see him live at the Palladium when I was a kid. And and I'm and and this album. Blew me away. I played it every single day. And then I got into Quincy Jones and I bought an album he did called This Is How I Feel About Jazz. And I love this album. And then, um, and also, I fell in love with Julie London, because her, sec- her voice was so sultry and sexy. And then I saw the album cover. And, oh, my God, it was like looking at a Playboy. I mean, I was so in love with her. Well, when I went to college, I d- decided to be very, very... Um, and my dad would go along with these things because he knew I was okay. I, I wanted to be independent. I took an 18-foot house trailer that we had that we used for fishing. And I rented a spot close to my college. And, and I lived in a trailer park. And I lived in this thing... And I brought my record player, but I only had two records. I forgot to bring my records. And the two records I had was Julie Is Her Name and Birth of a Band, which was another favorite of Quincy. So I played these two albums every night as I was going to sleep, depending upon my mood, because Quincy had a wider range because some of the things were killing it and some of the things were sexy and all these things. And then Julie's was just all sexy. And I would play these. And as I was going to sleep, Michael, I started to see, I saw myself, and this is not me thinking about it, okay? I'm just going to sleep, but I'm in that alpha state and I'm listening to their music. I saw myself working with Julia London. I saw her with me and me with her. And then I also saw me working with Quincy Jones. Now I'm 18 years old at the time, and they were pleasant thoughts, so why not entertain them? Sure. Well, six years later, Julie London called, and I worked with her. 11 years later, Quincy Jones called, and I've been working with him ever since, 45 years. Wow. So again, these are things that are internal in us, and, and to me, I just turned 75, and at my 74th birthday, I spent it with my son and his wife, and... And, his, and, his, and her parents. And we're all sitting around the breakfast table. And my son says to me, Dad, you just turned 75. What are, what are your words of wisdom today? And it came to me immediately. I said, happiness is a choice. Yeah. So this was my choice. And, and this is also what I learned. Because I asked my dad, when ideas come to you, how do you know if they're good or not? He said, well, your heart will tell you that. Yeah. Does it feel good? It is good. If it doesn't feel good, just let it go. Let go. You don't have to, if you don't pay attention to it, it'll leave. Yeah. Like women. <laughs> well, I'm serious, man. You know, the one thing I, I have learned, I've studied a lot about the feminine relationship thing, not just because of myself, because I'm an author and I write about this. Uh, My second novel, I'm writing as a woman and I wanted to, you know, have some teeth, you know? (laughs) And and what I learned in my studies is that a woman will put up with a lot from a husband as long as he's present. In fact, even these relationships where women are physically abused, when he's physically abusing you, He's present. I'm not saying any of this is good and I'm not recommending it. Yeah. But I'm afraid it's the truth. And but I don't care how wealthy you are, how nice you are, how thoughtful you are. Well, if you're thoughtful, you are present. But if you can you can give a woman everything that she desires, and if you're not present, she's gonna be hanging out with a gardener. She's gonna be hanging out with somebody else who is present. Yeah. So this, to me, that's just an example. But to me, that's the way if we don't give things attention, they go away. So when these thoughts of being with Julie and being with, with Quincy came, I just let them hang out. So they were hanging out. We were hanging out together in my spirit when I was 18 years old. And when we hung out together six and 11 years later, We all felt like we knew each other.
0: Yeah. And you did because, like, on the etherical world or sense, however you want to describe it, that's there.
1: Exactly. It's alive. Yeah. And it's beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well, this may or may not be a very good segue. Tell us about um, um, She's Out of My Life.
1: Sure, happy to. Um,
0: How did that come about and... Because I know that it was originally for Frank Sinatra, as I understand it.
1: Well, that was the artist, but I didn't write it for anybody. Right. No. Uh, well, let me give you a quick history of why I'm a songwriter. Okay. In fact, why I got into music, see, a lot, I know so many people in the music industry that are so in love with music. That's their life. Music is not my life, mm-hmm. it's a huge part of it. But my life is about people. I love people. And, and again, this came from something dad said. He said, son, we are all here to serve others. All of us. And I believe that we serve others the best from our passion. Because I have yet to meet someone who has a passion who isn't good about, it. good at it. Look at your passion for yoga. Look at what you've done, how it shaped your life, how you've shaped other people's life, Mm -hmm. how it's grown into whole other areas. And it all started with that. Well, mine started with music because I enjoyed it. My dad dad beguiled us with his playing, and that's why we liked it. And I also saw when he would take a breath because he's a great trumpet player also a cellist, but when he, and he closed his eyes when he played, and then he'd open them and I would see rapture in them. And I went, I want some of that. (laughs) Yeah. So when I was five, I said, dad, I want to play trumpet. And he said, great, great. He said, I hope you understand that with every opportunity comes an equal responsibility. I said, okay, what does that mean? He (laughs) said, well, if you're going to play, I would expect you to practice every day, five days a week, just like you go to school. This is how you learn math. This is how you learn English. This is how you learn trumpet. And I said, well, how long will I do that? And he said, I think 10 minutes is enough to start. I'm like, well, damn, I got that, you know? And so... And because he was a great mentor, and he always got me the best teachers, and we enjoyed playing. Playing wasn't a joy for us. We loved it. My brother and I both. And so when I get to be the age where I'm interested in girls, I'm in seventh grade, and I want to hold this girl named Martha Mutts, who is my girlfriend. So to speak, girlfriend is my, means we smiled at each other. Yeah. Maybe we can dance us. I wanted to hold her. The only way I could hold her was on the dance floor in a slow song. <laughs> and we had our very first school dance at, in seventh grade. And if, instead of being hold, held in the gym at school or something, this was held at a, at a community center, you know, with a real band and all this stuff. And, and the band that they chose was playing music my dad wouldn't dance to.
2: Hmm.
1: And so my friends go Baylor. Go tell them what we want. So I go up there and tell the guys, ask them, would you play so-and-so? Would you play so-and-so? And And this guy says, we don't play that shit. (laughs) So I'm disappointed.
0: Yeah.
1: Again, when I pull on this formula, okay, what do you want? I want to hold Martha Mutz. What are you going to do about it? And I thought, well... This band's not going to play it, but I, but I can. So I, I just went up. I was 13, so I didn't, you know, ver- verbally, I was fine with my own, but the guy who managed the place had to be 25 or something. An old guy, yeah. An old guy. <laughs> I thought I'd better stand next to him before he died. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do, but I thought, you know what? Here's what I can do. And this is what this formula helps me with. I'm going to go up and talk to him. No, you don't have the balls to do that. You're right, I don't. But I have the, the gumption to stand next to him. Mm. So I just stood next to him. And pretty soon he looked over at me and he says, Are you having a good time? And I said, Sir, I'm glad you asked me that question. Uh, no, I'm not having a good time, and neither are my friends. And he said, And why is that? I said, do you see anybody on the dance floor? No, but they will. I don't think they will. Why? This music is not our music. And instead of bringing him a problem, I said, however, if on your next open date, I will provide you with a band that will play our music. It'll be the same size as this, and we'll do the first gig pro bono. Hmm. So he goes... Let's go in the office. He <laughs> looked up the date and he says, Can you make this Friday night? And I said, You got it. I walked out of there and I thought, Well, I don't have a band. I better <laughs> put one together. And these are all reasonable things to do. But I knew people. So I called my buddies and I had, a, first of all, I made a set list of all the songs that I knew my buddy got because we all loved them, right? We're the same age. I call my buddies, and, and, uh, and I say, uh, can you play? Of course we can play these songs. Of we okay, well, here's your set list. They came around my house and picked it up. Friday night, everybody was on the dance floor. They couldn't get them out of the place, and the guy comes up to me and says, you got a gig every Friday night. Well, wow. next Wednesday, I get a call from Crozier, Jr. I, saying, hey, we hear you have a great band. Can you play for us on Friday night? And I said, no, but I'll get you one. So pretty soon, I had two bands. In six months, I had four bands. Now people think that I'm the music maven, but if you think about it, what was my story about? Connecting.
0: Connecting, yeah.
1: Getting what we wanted. All I wanted to do was to hold my girl, but I had a talent and connections and I used that to get what I wanted.
0: And I guess the question is, did you get to hold Martha Mutt's hand?
1: Oh, baby. <laughs> no, we were making out by the end of the night nice oh yeah oh yeah she was cute too yeah so but so to me music is is you know my way of serving others from my passion yes i'm passionate mm-hmm. about music but when i'm sitting at home you hear any music playing no i don't I don't turn on music when I'm home. I don't play, pick up my horn and play it. If I have a reason to sit at the piano, I will. But I've because I've grown up with it so much, it's kind of like it's kind of like a dentist going on his day off to watch oral surgery. You know?
0: Yeah. Why would they do that?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, but it's going on in my head. It's all, it's in me constantly. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I don't play music at home because it's going on in my head. Yeah. So uh, I hope that's helpful to your listeners. Absolutely.
0: Tell us more too. We we were talking the the other day too, and a little bit about we, we are the world and how that came about, and and oh as, yeah. as you were we recording the that. takes and Cindy only and Cindy Lauper only having one take and but tell yeah. us be, before that tell us a little bit about how we are the world came about and Harry Belafonte and how all that stuff happened.
1: Well, it actually started back with a a concert that um, George Harrison did in Bangladesh. That's the first time they brought a group of, you know, varied musicians together. I remember
0: that song or that
1: concert. Yeah, the concerts come and go. Yeah. Uh, And so, Bob Geldof, there was a big famine in Ethiopia, and Bob Galdoff is, like Harry Belafonte, is a very socially conscious guy. And he and he and a couple of guys wrote a song called Do They Know It's Christmas? And they pulled in, I can't remember how many artists did it, it was done in England. And, uh, and it sold in records like crazy fast. But where he realized he made the mistake, was no matter how good that song was, nobody was going to play. Do they know it's Christmas in March? Mm-hmm. So Waldorf goes, "Uh oh, we made a big mistake." So he flies over the United States and he goes to a fellow activist who is Harry Belafonte, and he says, "Hey Harry, would you help me? I want to redo this in the Big Pond. Um, we have, you know, we have more things to do, and we can do a lot more here." And um, and Harry said, well, I think you got to do a concert. And he said, yeah, that'd be great, man. Uh, connect. Uh, so he connected him with... Uh, Harry Belafonte connected him with Ken Cragen, who is one of the master... Uh, well, he's a master human being. I love this man. I've known him since I did The Smother Show. Uh, he's he's managed virtually everybody, and he's a real humanitarian. And And Ken said... Hey, man, concerts are great, but they're, they come and go. They're, they're gone. What we need to do is make a recording. We need to write a new song that isn't about Christmas that, that deals with the same thing. And so, and Harry says, great. Bob says, great. He calls uh, Lionel Richie, who is one of his clients, and Lionel writes the song. And then he calls Quincy because Ken always deals with the best.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: at that time there wasn't a better producer on the world in the world than Quincy. He called Quincy and he sent him the song and he said, Oh man, yeah, absolutely I'll do this. But he said, you know, I'm listening to the song and I love Lionel, and they're all everybody's friends. He said, But I think Michael should kiss this. Mm-hmm. And Ken said, Ken and <clears throat> Lionel way, yeah, go. So anyway, Lionel and Michael ended up writing it. And uh, and then we started looking at the kind of singers that we wanted in this. And we knew that we could get anybody we wanted because of Michael and and Lionel.
0: So did, did you know kind of from the beginning that you wanted to bring this large group of
1: performers? We, yeah, because they'd already done it. They'd already done it in England.
0: Yeah.
1: He'd already we we just took their concept and filled it out. You know, and 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 had because we are 320 million, and there's 60 million, you know, uh, between England. There, there was just more opportunity there. So, yeah, that was the whole deal. And then, but nobody had ever brought that many. We had, like, 40 artists or something. And, um, and we treated it like a war in terms of our planning. What can go wrong, and what do we do about it?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we sat down with Lionel and Quincy and Ken Cragen and I, uh, and they basically mapped out the night. And that's why Quincy put up a, a sign that said, please check your ego at the door, because with, this was going to be a room full of egos. And, and the last thing you want to do is get a bunch of hit artists in the studio at the same time, because they all feel, and rightly so, that their idea is the best. Yeah. So how do you make them part of a group? Yeah. And make them compliant and yet not distinguish, not, um, um, what do you call when you put a fire out? Not distinguish. Extinguish. Huh? Distinguish. Extinguish? Extinguish, yeah. yeah. Not extinguish their passion.
0: Yeah. Well, no, now, not to take you off track, it's my understanding too that Diana Ross asked Daryl Hall for, um, an autograph on the music.
1: Right. I was just going to get to that. Okay. So we have, so we have it very well planned out. So there's no time for Amara's, what Quincy calls Amara's, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, so we, everything, one thing to stop, another thing. So we're all, I got them all in the studio and we're playing, uh, Michael laid a guide track on the song with, um, So we could listen, we could learn, it's a reference. So we're listening to it, we're listening to it over and over and over. And that's the way that we learn the best is when we just listen and let it come in on us. And while they're rewinding the tape, Diana, who, and we knew that there would be some people that other folks called divas. I don't really believe in that. But, uh, and how would we deal with them with grace? Uh If it occurred, well, it never did occur. But what happened is while they were rewinding the tape, Diana, like a little schoolgirl, holds her music in her hands and goes up to Daryl Hall and says, Daryl, I'm your biggest fan. Would you please sign my music? And he says, of course I will. Then there are 40 of us looking around and we go, oh my God, this is the only time we will ever be in the same room. And for the next hour and a half, we all signed each other's music. How wonderful. And you know what that did? At the end of that hour and a half, we were a family. Yeah. We were all in this together. We all had each other 's signatures. We were completely invested in this and and so we recorded the, the chorus first and uh, and that went on for a few hours uh, and, and it was all enjoyable. it was all wonderful and uh, and then we excused everybody else and we stayed with the soloist and we had him in a u-shape and and uh that was basically my department quincy said look my feeling is lionel's the first one to write this so he should sing the first line Mm. michael came along and wrote the other part with him he should sing the first chorus and because michael and diana are so closely related. She, Michael used to live with Diana when he first moved to LA back when he was a kid. Uh, she was almost like an auntie to him. Then uh, uh, have Diana join him on the second part of the chorus, and the rest is yours. Yeah. So yeah. it was like arranging in heaven. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now you had mostly all singers, but like Dan Aykroyd was on there too,
1: which yeah, yeah, but Dan a great sings, singer he didn't sing a solo, he was in the chorus. he was in the chorus, yeah, I could put you in the chorus it'd be fine. The thing about choruses is that you don't want a bunch of good singers and choruses you what happens in a chorus is that you become a molecule, you know <laughs> in a larger group yeah. and, and it's wonderful and it's it's joyous and. Yeah, it was still a problem, but we wouldn't give Dana, uh, we wouldn't give Dana solo. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, so
0: what came out of We Are the World? Is it still playing out there? Did it
1: serve what you wanted to? Well, because of Ken Cragen running this thing, and also my favorite attorney, uh, Jay Cooper, who handled all the legal side, uh, Ken... Ken is great with people. So as we recorded this, nobody paid for anything. Nobody was paid for anything. They gave us a studio, everybody worked pro bono. Uh, Michael and Lionel have never taken a cent from this song. It's all going to USA for Africa, which was the organization that was built. And, um, and along the line, and, and the night that we shot it, you know, it was all covered by video. I can't tell you how many video people we had there. Everybody worked pro bono, because Kent's thing was, look, we're all working for free, don't you dare make a nickel, man. Yeah. we're all doing this for the same reason. So yeah. that, no, no one argued with that. Uh, the record was good and, and well received, and it, we made $63 million. Wow, Not one record. Wow. Now Ken turned that into 120 million dollars worth of product—medicine, food, clothes, clothes. Again, because he goes to all the vendors and invites them to be part of this, but of course, no one's going to make any money. You may cover costs. Yeah. So that turned it into 120 million and the beautiful thing about it for me is that at this time you know people have been you know it was united way red cross all of these things they raise money so often at this time in a in in these because these nations in africa were pretty much regimes and Mm -hmm. and uh way too often the goods would be loaded off the ship, onto the dock and as that ship pulled out, another ship pulled in and loaded back on the ship because the guys around the country had sold it. Mm. So how were we going to avoid that? And Ken felt the best thing is to have cameras rolling everywhere and the notoriety, the fact that we covered the earth with our, I mean, there was no one on earth except for maybe if you were in the jungle someplace with no communication, would you not know somebody in this band, you know, somebody in this group. So we had such notoriety that when the delivery and and they were being taped as they delivered the goods, (laughs) everything that we did got to where it was going. So we talk about serving others.
0: Yeah. So kind of like the local politicians couldn't do anything about it. Exactly, and they could probably say, "Look how good that we are because this happened."
1: Well, of course, it became a feather in their cap too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Is is it still generating revenues, or it's is it?
1: Still, I talked to Ken a couple of weeks ago, and the company is still going. Um, they uh, they still pull in about a quarter of a million a year. Wow, that's a lot. And all of that still goes out. I mean, it's not. There's not. Uh, you know, uh, there is no bottom line. Yeah. yeah. Comes in and goes out. Yeah. So yeah, it's something to be especially because that was 1985, what's that, 35 years ago? Yeah. Um and and if it's, you know, it made 120 million the first year, but you you figured out uh, even on a sliding scale, yeah. it's been an incredible journey and something that every one of us that we're involved with are proud of. Yeah. To be a part, and this goes back to serving others. We're all here to serve others. Yeah, how wonderful. And I found, you know, we're all human beings. I've done things where I was serving myself, and they never worked out. Mm -hmm. When I'm serving others and not thinking about myself, I get showered with stuff, man.
2: Yeah.
0: Isn't it amazing how that works?
1: It is. It's energy, and the thing is that um, we... In my opinion, we tend to live in a mindful world instead of a spiritual world, and I'm not talking about spiritual like you know saying things or whatever people do. But yes. just, we know what it's like to be in our spirit world. Yeah, and it doesn't rule us because it's feminine. Yeah, the feminine rule. Their power is not in masculine power. Like you will do this, you will that. No, 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 no. They get us. Actually, they guide us to discovery. Hey, women. Yeah. Nay, the feminine. Yeah. Give birth. I have seven grandchildren now.
0: Wow. Yeah, man. And are they in your area, or do you have to travel to see them?
1: I have to travel. My children have trifurcated this nation. I have a daughter. I'm going to start in the West Coast. I have a daughter in Spokane. I have a daughter in Fort Worth area and I have a son in Alexandria, Virginia. It's just like a big V. I yep. And uh, for the last year, I have hung out with all of them a great deal. And I've just settled back in LA. I'm in Playa Vista I've got a number of, of uh, projects that I'm doing here. And one of them I'm very excited about too, because it's for a company called, an organization called Teen Cancer America. And it was started by uh, by Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend at The Who. I love The Who because they're just irreverent enough, you know? Yeah. And yet not negative at all. They're just, you know, it's like, who are you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, and, and guess what the name of their overall, their overall, uh, uh, what do you call it? I'm sorry. Charity. Yeah. But there's a, there's a the charity is one word, but it's, uh, anyway, yes. Charity. The name of their overall charity is called who cares. Wow. Is that perfect for them?
0: I love it. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's the way they are. So anyway, they started, um, they started this thing in the, New- in England 25 years ago. Uh, because teen, teens were not being served because it's rare for teens to get cancer. The older people, they're all set up for, and unfortunately, pediatrics is the second, but they are, they're armed for that. They know what to do. What would happen with a teenager, not only are you leaving your family, it's leaving to your tribe, so you're making a transition, your body's making a transmission, your hormones are going nuts, and all of a sudden, you get an expiration date. And then you go in for treatment, and your roommate's a six-year-old, yeah, an 80-year-old. And and we all know that with disease, that our mental attitude has a lot to do with how we fare with it. Huge. And, and I love Pete and and uh and Roger. Roger is a generous spirit. And when he heard about this, a friend of his told, because it was it wasn't personal to them. I thought maybe it was somebody in their family, but it wasn't. But a dear friend of both his and Pete's was telling them about how troublesome it was. And Pete and, and Roger said, you know what? I'm going to use my notoriety to change this. 25 years ago, now they are doing seven concerts a year at the Royal Albert Hall.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They started with an office of six. Now they have an office of 100. There is virtually no hospital, according to them, and I'm the reporter here, so if somebody says he doesn't know what he's talking about, you're right. But I'm I'm going to share it with you. Yeah. What I heard is that virtually every hospital has a ward that's not being used, or even a wing, you know? There's always a room somewhere, and they started out by Making these places that's an atmosphere for teens so they can talk to each other, so they can come together and hang out with each other and trade their war stories and feel each other. And there, I see some video that's just so heartening like these two young girls that are on IVs, and you know, the IVs are on a stand and they're racing down the halls on the stands, you know, they're having fun instead of going off, my life is over, you know? Yeah. So I've gotten involved with them because they're now doing it in America. And this reminds me, we are the world. Maybe this is why this is turning to this. Because again, England's a great country. It's 60 million people. We have 320. We already have 15 hospitals. They're looking for 300 and maybe more. Uh, And and the thing with these concerts that we're going to do, yes, Hopefully they make money, but they're more there to build awareness. That's worth more than the dollars. Because then the donors come in. We have one of our biggest donor, um, donors, um, uh, husband and wife, lost their daughter at 22. Mm. And, they, and, they're, and they're wonderful philanthropists. So they joined. They said, oh, my gosh, yes, this is something that our hearts in. So this is what we're doing. And, and uh, I was asked to write an anthem for them. And it's been a thrill to write it because, again, I know I'm serving others
2: In yeah. my
1: passion and the talents that were God-given to me.
0: Yeah. So it, it's something that Pete and Roger with The Who, they're going to play this anthem and?
1: No, they won't play it. They, they won't game, play it? They are behind this. They are invisible to this. Yeah. Most people don't know that they're involved. And when I talk with Roger, you know, I said, well, you know, we've got all these great plans. You might be really, you know, I said, you'll probably love when you see him. He said, I probably won't see him, man. I stay away. I get great people. Yeah. I them do it. The point is I wanted to make this happen. And it is.
2: Yeah.
1: He just not right. want to be involved. And this isn't part of his career. I don't think he's ever sung a song about that. I don't know that he has or not. But yeah. the point is that uh, because that they, these concerts <laughs> with the Albert Hall, because uh roger is who he is you know paul mccartney come by and play it so will alton john and they you know and we can do that in america too and yeah. what we're actually doing is we're going to do a full orchestra a full chorus and then stars
2: wow yeah
1: it's it's a, it's a big deal and it's so much fun i'm having the time of my life and and again why because i'm serving others
0: yeah wonderful you you know i don't i don't talk about There's a whole lot, and you may or may not even know, but, um, you know, when I was 12 years old, I had a water skiing accident and I had 60% of my liver removed and 21 uh, blood transfusions, my gallbladder, cracked ribs, collapsed lung, coma, had a near-death experience, died and came back and, and all of that stuff and did wheelchair races in the hospital. I, mean, I did all that stuff, and I just have this real deep compassion for children and kids that um, are are dealing with their, their own, whether it's cancer or whether it's anything else that they struggle with. You know, medically, is just like you know, I have a real deep heart for that because I've been there, done that.
1: You did it. How long when right. that happened?
0: I was twelve. Oh. My. It was 1971. I had just won the um, the junior championship at Portland Golf Club. Wow. And I was water skiing, and I was a little hotshot water skier at 12 years old and oh. was doing a beach landing, and I uh, hit the beach a little too hard and um, head over heels. Yeah. It took me about a year to recover.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. So you, firsthand you know what this is like
0: firsthand yeah and you know I I gave blood for a number of years I should start doing it again my big focus right now and everything that that I do with my work and my business um, there's a organization out there you may or may not have heard of it called Operation Underground Railroad and their um, their main mission is ending the sex slavery in the world
1: oh amen
0: and so i i have a portion of my revenue every month that goes to them and it's just you know when when i heard about it and it was a special ops guy that left dhs and and all that because he was going into these hell holes around the world and seeing all these things happening out there he said we got to stop it wow you know there's 40 million slaves in the world today that they're saying you know, there's more slaves, they say, in the United States right now than during the Civil War.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And even where where, where I live. The, All sex the slaves? Sex slaves. And that the corridor through here, Highway 97, is supposed to be a huge corridor as well for a lot of that activity.
1: Oh, man.
0: And it, it's just, it's, it's disgusting, really. It
1: is disgusting. It's the worst part of humanity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I do believe, and I I really, I mean, we are the world and teen cancer America and all these things. It's so important that we find something to help with.
1: Yeah. And you know, I'm a big fan of Tony Robbins. Yeah. And I I went through his mastery university Mm -hmm. and uh, it was like paying for college. It was not cheap, but you know what? what a bargain it was. Uh, and, 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 you know, he said, and I've done probably a dozen UPWs, you know, Unleash the Power Within, his weekend thing, you know, uh, he really spoke to my soul and obviously a lot of others. And, and, but I loved what he said when we were going through this university, there is in three different six day immersions over two years. And, um, and he said, you know what, if you walk away with one thing, yeah. and what I walked away with was what he calls six human needs.
2: Yeah.
1: And they came to him in the shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? Yeah. This is one yeah. Of my things come to me, is uh, driving down the freeway, doing this, doing, you know what I mean? And I think it is all of us because there's a part of our consciousness that is in that is busy and it gives kind of our, it's like mom isn't home, the kids get out to play, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, his six needs are certainty. We all need to know that the sun is coming up tomorrow. Yeah. Second is uncertainty, because as much as we need certainty, certainty is boring. Yeah. Uncertainty is the spice of life. Yeah, it's the flow. Yes. And then the third is significance we all want to feel significant and if we don't we feel terrible Mm -hmm. and that's what i can imagine these sex slaves feel like that you know regardless of gender you lose your significance and and i loved his example he said you know significance how do you gain significance he said well it can be gained a lot of ways and, and I break that down into what is obtainable and what is sustainable. He said, if you're walking down the street and some guy comes up to you with a 45 and points it at your stomach, he is significant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But is that sustainable? Mm-hmm. No. So yeah. that's a different kind of significance. But it's significant. Number four is love and connection. And we all need that. And this is what he talked about, six human needs. He said, these aren't things that we want, that we strive for. These are things we cannot live without. And one way or the other, we're going to accomplish them. And whether your life is happy or not may have a lot to do with the manner in which you go about feeding these needs. So you have certainty, uncertainty, significance, love and connection. Five is... um, I think five is contribution, which is giving without, <laughs> giving without want or expectation of recompense. Yeah. And I'll think of the sixth one in a minute.
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you something about Tony as well. And what we were talking about is Operation Underground Railroad. Um, Tony's been a huge contributor to that. And I know that last year he personally contributed over a million dollars to the organization. There you go. But the, the guy that started it, Tim Barrett, the special ops guy, Tony went undercover on an op in Haiti um, to buy some of these kids as little as three, as young as three years old. Wow. And he, he was out there in, in Haiti with Tim doing this special op and what they were trying to do. First, they were trying to get the, the kids out of there, but then they were, you know, they, they wanted to also arrest the perpetrators. And Tony said it was one of the hardest things that he's ever done is to sit there in an undercover type situation, operation, and not wanting to jump out and wring these guys necks. And women too, because the women there was a number of women that were heavily involved in, in the trafficking. And
1: oh, yeah, no, this and is all, the, all that
0: he could do not to, you know, jump out of his skin.
1: It's about power, overpowering the, the underpowered.
0: Absolutely.
1: And and uh, yeah, and it's it is disgusting. It's disgusting yeah. to anyone who doesn't rationalize their way out of it. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, so and those people all end up dying young yeah i'm not talking about the maybe the victims too but i think the perpetrators do too it's like yeah. dealing drugs man it's like yeah. Banks. Yeah. you know it, it just it's not sustainable
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's one it's
1: of those notes. but you got a guy like warren buffett who has good taste and has made millionaires out of how many people Is eighty nine years old and killing it, you know?
0: Still killing it because he's serving. Yeah.
1: And I love what they said. They said, "You, why don't you wear a better suit?" He said, "Actually, my suits are very well made and they're very expensive, but on me they look cheap." Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think he still drives an Oldsmobile, actually.
1: Oh yeah, and he lives in the same house. He's living for you know whatever, and and that tells me that his. The order of his life is life-giving. Yeah. This isn't about him, you know, unlike some politicians.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't have too much time left to, today, Tommy, but I was just thinking back when, when we met um, the publishing event. and was in Vegas. We, we, you were standing out in the hallway, and, and I was thinking, oh, i got to go introduce myself to that guy. I had no idea who you were. I mean, I knew Tommy Baylor, I knew some of the music and songs and that kind of stuff, but I didn't really know you, and I went up and I said, hi, Tommy, because you had your name tag on, and we started talking. <laughs> and it turned out that, that we had um, some mutual friends, and um, we, we really hit it off, and, and now I think that was 2012, so six, seven years ago, here we I are having a conversation.
1: Maybe remember you coming up. Yeah. Because you came up like you knew me,
2: yeah. And
1: I thought, well, maybe I do know him, I just don't <laughs> know But by the time we walked the other way, we did know each other, it was beautiful, yeah. man.
2: Yeah,
1: and those like, are energies coming together, see, that's what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And, and it's just like, like you're your,
1: your you can't prove an energy,
0: yeah, right there. Anything is possible,
1: yeah,
2: right, right?
0: yep, yeah. And, you know, I, I get to see you a couple times a year, and it's just every time you're you're around, it's just like it's a real pleasure to, you know, hang out, have dinner, lunch, whatever it is that we're doing.
1: And Well, thank uh, you, man. And the same thing with you. I've always enjoyed seeing you. You're a bright light. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So um
0: if we didn't need, if, if I didn't need to go on to the next thing, I wouldn't be wrapping this up, Tommy. We could go on all day. I, I know you're such a magnificent storyteller and you've got so many great stories I and mean, we didn't talk about Radio City Music Hall, Siegfried and Roy, you doing yoga. I mean there's so <laughs> many different things that, that uh, we could talk about so but maybe another time.
1: You know? Absolutely sounds good to me.
0: Yeah so uh, I believe in
1: what you're doing Michael.
0: Yeah thank you. So regardless of whether you're you're listening to the audio podcast or you're watching this the video, I would really invite you to uh, check out these books that Tommy has written. Again, first of all, Anything Is Possible. You uh, told a story about that earlier. And What You Want, Wants You. I've been diving back into this again. I've, I've read it before, and I'm diving back in. It's just like, oh my god, that sentence wasn't there
1: before, Tommy.
0: <laughs> you magically added it back in. You know that
1: pleases me more than anything else. With people that have writ, that have read um, what you want, want you, it it becomes kind of one of one of those books that you can just open any page and you might get a little gem out of it. Yeah. Uh, there's a friend of mine who was the president of USC, the best president we ever had. Stephen Sample wrote another book that I recommend, and it's called The Contrarians' Guide to Leadership. And I have that book by my bed, and every now and then I just open it up to a page, and it—it's exactly what I need to hear that day. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, again, anything is possible. Is—is is not a linear book. It's just about different subjects and things of that nature. Well, uh, and I want to say about anything is possible is that um, my. <laughs> I have a new agent. He said that's the worst title ever put on a book. <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything. And I happen to agree with him. But anyway, uh, anything is possible. Is the life story of Aesop that came to me? Yeah. So it's his life story.
0: It's just that flow. So, well, I'm your are your, your gift, Tommy. And again, I look forward to um, seeing you soon. And you know, I hope I hope a visit is in order.
1: Well, it is because I have a new grandson up in uh, up in Spokane, and you know I like to drive. I'd rather drive up there from LA than fly. I, I hear you. And and I love to do it because I I always get to stop by and see Gale, and then I get to see you.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So uh, that's the plan.
0: Yeah. I'll well, let
1: you, know I'm you know
0: Les Brown is in town February 25th and. Les Brown, myself, and Ken Streeter, which is um, is what's called motivation.com. So we're going to be speaking on stage in the Tower um, on Monday the 25th. So I'm really looking forward to that.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Where's the Tower?
0: It's downtown.
1: Here in downtown Bend. Oh, and Bend. I love yeah. Bend. That's right. You live in Bend, don't you?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, because Redmond's a different. I mean, it's Redmond's a great town, but it's not dead.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <In terms of laughs> no,
0: audience. it's not. No, totally different. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah. that's great, man. Well, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. I, I, I'm going to be in the studio because we're actually making a, a reference recording of this uh, anthem that I've written. So Wonder. it may be March, but I'll let you know when I'm coming.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, hold hold on till we get to the other side again. Anything is possible. What you want, want you. And um, get the book. See whether it does something for you.
1: And I'm on Facebook under Thomas Baylor. B-A-H-L-E-R.
0: Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Tommy.
1: Thanks, man.